You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 124, that's 124, for December 6, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about the Chakmul Conference in Canada, diversity in higher-level college archaeology programs, and the importance of going to the right school. Or is it important at all? I don't know. Let's argue about it. So keep studying and stay in school, uh, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Bill in California. Good morning. Stephen in Calgary. Hi. And Doug in Scotland. Hello. How's it going, guys? So we had something completely different planned for today, um, but in our pre-show conversations, we've decided to completely derail that topic and talk about something else. But before we get to that, I am going to tell you guys a little bit about an anniversary that's happening today. Um, November 19th is the day that we're recording this. I know it's coming out in December. December 6th, I believe, is when you're listening to this, if it's on the day it released. Uh, But November 19th, 2017, right now, represents six years to the day that I released my very first podcast episode of a show called the CRM News Weekly that eventually became the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And they're two different shows, but they were in the same feed. And I ended up wiping out all the CRM News Weekly stuff. Uh, it's still, I still have it all. Um, it's actually still online. It's on my DigTech website, very deeply uh, within the bowels of that website. And uh, and I went back and listened to episode one just last week. <laughs> and it's totally horrific. I don't know if the shows have gotten too much better. I, I strongly recommend people find this and listen. Um, <laughs> because this, when, when you did your initial pitch of the uh, the podcast... Like that was the only thing to go, you know, to go on because you're like, yeah, we're going to do an archaeology, CRM archaeology podcast. And I went and listened to the news and I'm like, oh, well, who is this guy signed up for? <laughs> so I got to find this. Like, I'm trying to find it right now. I'm, I probably have a few copies. Let me find it. I'll probably take it. I've got it. I might put a I might just drop it as an audio file, like bonus uh, in the show notes for this episode, because it is kind of fun just to go back and listen to that it's so terrible though i mean my, my do, you guys, do you guys remember like episode like one through 20 or something chris always would like have some sort of article for us to discuss <laughs> and we pretty much dropped that like years ago god we were doing that weren't we <laughs> yeah I, I went back and listened to some of the very first crm podcast one uh episodes um yeah we kind of changed a bit well that's good i i think change is good you know um, I this this podcast has, in some ways, remained uh remained the same in the way that we do a lot of things. But I I just think that we've gotten, um, we've gotten better at it. You know, they're they're a little tighter. I think um, it's a little better information. I remember Bill was one of the first ones to complain to me that the show was too long. He couldn't listen to it like after we recorded it, which is why we're at an hour now. <laughs> but he wasn't the only one. You know, we 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 could go two hours on those first shows easily. Yikes! I gotta yeah. check those out. I know they're just—they just never end. And 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 I uh, was just listening to um, uh, another archaeology podcast, and they had an extra long uh, episode and went like an hour and forty-five minutes. I'm like, holy crap, this is long! Didn't we used to do this? <laughs> and and yeah, yeah, and, and it is. It's, it's like it's really hard to actually make it through an entire episode just because you run out of time. Yeah, it's uh, that makes it tough. I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It's um, on the other hand, though, hardcore history. Those mm-hmm. podcasts are like three and a half hours, and I just listen, you know, twenty minutes at at a time, just wrapped attention. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how he does it. Well, the Dan, you're talking about the Dan Carlin's hardcore history. Yeah, Dan Carlin. Yeah. The reason is they put out like two episodes a year, so. And, and they record throughout the whole time. I mean, he'll do, he'll do these huge recording sessions. I actually talked to him at Podcast Movement a couple months ago. And uh, and he also did like this whole 
on stage thing where he talked about his whole process and he's got like it's mostly him um but he does have a research team now and they put together these these massive episodes and they'll record a whole bunch of stuff and sometimes they'll scrap it and they'll record a whole bunch more stuff and then somebody else edits it together and they end up with a 6 hour episode but they only put out you know one or two a year so when you when you consider that it becomes it becomes still impressive that it all kind of ties together it's all one long topic that ties together However, uh, if you've got six, if I've got six months to put together a six-hour episode, I think I could probably do that and make it make sense. Yeah, but also the topic is not like ours. I mean, we're there, he's not really talking about current stuff because he's talking about history, right? So, yeah. if you want to cover World War One, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there, right? right? You can you can keep going a long, long time. You know, the first Persian Empire. That's been a topic of uh, intellectual debate for more than a hundred years. Yeah. So there's whole anthologies and books. It would take you a long time to just go through it, and it's been dissected every such, you know, which way, mm-hmm. uh, but loose. Except you know, in our case, we're talking about something happened Tuesday, yeah. and then it's coming out one week later. There's not a lot on it. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, yeah, they're very different shows. Uh, I actually have thought about doing for the uh for the APN I'd, I'd really like to do eventually some kind of narrative almost storytelling ty- style show um but the work involved in those is just so incredibly high and I don't want to do it unless we can really do it right and it really would take uh it really would take a team you know it would take a person to um to really kind of spearhead the whole thing and and orchestrate it from a producer standpoint but it would take a team to produce it uh, you know, just to collect the material and, and put it all together and then have different people listen to it. That's, I think, the key to some of those other podcasts. They go through listening periods where they'll have everybody sitting around a table listening to these segments and then saying, well, I think we should move this here and I think we should move that there. And that's what produces that really great, you know, those really great episodes. But um, anyway, I just wanted to bring up that this is the uh, six-year anniversary of the CRM News Weekly and my first podcast ever released. And I've pretty much released at least one podcast episode every year, every week since then, um, because that that podcast was weekly and I didn't miss an episode. And then we started the CRM Archaeology podcast. Oh, so I guess there was a time period where I only released an episode every two weeks because that was the only show I was doing. Um, and then when we started the APN, now it's been, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of episodes released since then. Well, and you're, you're on like a ton of shows, right? Like how many APN shows are you on? Uh, I was just talking about this the other day with somebody, so I have the number off the top of my head. Six. I'm on six shows. so That's a lot. Yeah. It is a lot, but I love it. Uh, it's kind of amazing. And, you know, I, I want to put out there uh, so everybody can hear this. And I mentioned this, I think, on the, the episode of You Call This Archaeology that we just did on Saturday. Um, we do a live show on Facebook now once a week. And, you know, I've had people actually suggest to me before that I'm doing this, quote, for the money. Like I had somebody say on Facebook not too long ago when I posted something like, oh, you're just posting these episodes in this group so you can get more money. I'm like, who do you know anything about podcasting? Because there's no money. Like there's no money. I mean, there's a very tiny amount of money right now. I'd love there to be lots of money. I love that to be an actual complaint. That way I could actually legitimately do this full time. But right now, full disclosure, full honesty, uh, DigTech, my primary CRM firm, had a bunch of smallish invoices paid over the summer, and I actively stopped seeking new CRM projects. Um, I've got that money in the bank. Taxes are paid. Uh, employees are paid. Things are done. Things are settled down. Now it's money in the bank. And I'll be honest, I've got about four or five months where I can comfortably, uh, well, semi-comfortably live, only because my wife has a job. Um and do this APN thing full time in order to try to make it monetized. And that's why we keep pushing the membership site because that's how I want to monetize this. I don't want to seek out new ads for people to listen to and skip over while they're listening to the podcast. I'd rather we were listener supported. And just like NPR says, it only takes about 1% of our 100,000 monthly listeners to actually support us. And then you're, you're employing a couple of people to do this full time. Um, anyway, that's, you know, there's no money. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's smart for you to say that, though, because you don't want them to really know about your hidden garage uh, well, of Teslas, including that limited edition Batman Tesla. That's really how you make the money. Well, and now he's going to get that semi and, and just record from the back that, you know, the truck um, while, while sitting in, in the uh, roadster. So 
I use the semi, the Tesla semi Maybe. with the sleeper cab. The sleeper cab is where I'm recording from now, and it's we're traveling across the country, and it's pulling my other Teslas. They're all in the they're all in the trailers. <laughs> it's also Optimus Prime too. That when there's danger, it can transform and save people. That's right. That's absolutely right. Okay, well, what the hell are we going to talk about today, um, Doug? Are you still alive, Doug? Um, I want to just make sure because now I can see that whether or not you're muted. And I know that you are. Yeah. So what's going on, Doug? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm still alive. <laughs> still in Scotland? <laughs> still in Scotland. Yeah. Still still here listening to you guys. Yammer on. Nice. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess with uh, I guess with that introduction, um, I'm going to throw this uh, over to Bill and uh, Stephen for a little bit because you guys were having a great talk in the pre-show that we kept saying we should be recording this. Um, and, and out, you know, this, this was kind of born out of the fact that we were actually intending to talk about, um, well, last episode, Bill and I brought up on one of the segments, we brought up the hashtag me too phenomenon that's going around and basically sexual harassment, kind of our take on it. And it was just the two of us that wasn't by design. That's just who showed up for the podcast. And this time around, um, you know, we do have a woman as part of our staff. I would like more. I'll, I'll say again, if you want to be a host on the CRM Archaeology Podcast, contact me, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We're always looking for new people to throw into the mix because the guys, as you've probably heard, if you're a regular listener, not everybody can show up to every show. We all have jobs and lives and things that we're doing. So um, having a pool of people to choose from is great. And having a diverse pool is even better. So, um, you know, the more unique voices that we have, the better we can discuss a topic, I guess, from a multiple multiple angles, which is why we aren't going to talk about field romances today like we had kind of planned. Uh, this was kind of an offshoot of that last discussion. And my intention was to discuss it from a standpoint of um, like, we know that our dating pool is our coworkers, unlike some places where they say don't date people that you work with. But our dating pool when we're in the field for the whole entire year is our coworkers. Um, I mean, if you want anything long term, it's got to be the people you work with because they're the people you're traveling around the country with. That's how I met my wife and uh, and actually another girlfriend before that. And um, but it was, you know, it was decided that we need to have a little more diverse uh, crew and able to really talk about that and give it some. Uh, you know, give it its due. So, so we're going to put that on the back burner. If you're interested in coming on the show and talking about that, let me know. Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com one more time. And, uh, and we'll go from there. So Steve and uh, Bill, what are we going to talk about now? It's all the balls in your court. Chuck Mool, Steve, can you please <laughs> tell us about it? Because I saw this all over my Twitter feed and it looks like a really awesome conference. And that's what we started to talk about. But I actually, I didn't go. But you did, Stephen. So please tell us. Yes, and and I mean, I I, I went because it's local to me. Um, I, I'm actually surprised you guys haven't heard of this. This is uh, um, this year was Chuck Mool's fiftieth uh, anniversary. Um, it is, a, and if I if I understand this correctly, it, it is an undergrad undergraduate um, run conference that occurs every year, um, and. Uh, uh, it, usually they pick a theme and um, then, you know, some of the best and the brightest who have something to say about that theme show up and, and um, you know, talk in a series of sessions. And then uh, ev eventually um, they come out with the uh, proceedings uh, volume. And I've, I've used um, uh, past pr proceedings for, you know, uh, various uh, projects that have been worked on. For a number of years, I mean, because obviously it's it's been uh, putting those things out for fifty years, and I've been um, not doing archaeology for fifty years. So, uh, <laughs> really, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, so basically, uh, this year was the fiftieth. Um, it's put on by the University of Calgary, and um, uh, because it was the fiftieth, um, they they kind of pulled out as many stops as they could, and, and they actually put out a very good conference and there were a lot of really excellent sessions. Is there a theme behind the conference and what does the word chalk mole even mean? Uh, yeah, the, well, the theme <laughs> this year was basically a kind of a celebration of the 50th. Um, so okay. a lot of the stuff was, um, there were quite a few sessions that were like, um, you know, 
kind of retrospectives of you know pa- the past fifty years. How how is archaeology and Chakmul and and all this stuff changed um, over the years? And uh, um and and uh, you know and, and some of the sessions were actually more predictive, where it's like here's where we're going to be in fifty years. Here's here's you know looking ahead, you know what are the future things? What do we need to think about for the next 50 years? Um, mm-hmm. and, and those kind of were the most interesting ones. And then there were um, some, like, there, there's often a CRM session um, done by local uh, the local consultants, and it almost co- always completely ignores whatever the theme is. Um, because mm-hmm. They're CRM archaeologists, and they just want to talk about the cool find that, you know, they had this year. Um, as far as far as what Chakmul is, um, it, it is a uh, Mayan thing, Maya thing, and uh, I'm not a Mayanist, so I'm probably not the best person to answer that. Um, Bill, do you know? Yeah, I don't. I don't know what it is, but um, I just, all I all I saw is from afar. First of all, that something cool was happening in Canada in November, and I was like, doesn't the whole country just shut down when it gets cold? But that's that's the perspective you get if you lived in Arizona yeah. and the thermometer ever gets below 40 you're like the whole world's over. You know, I don't want, there's nothing happening. This isn't cold yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's just beginning. This is just the beginning. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, no. So I saw stuff on Chalk Mool and I know that my old advisor went up um, because she's done several projects, uh, not just in the Blackfeet country, but also at, uh, head smashed in and she's doing several other things and some of my other friends people i knew um went there so it was not just on twitter it was also on my other social media and it was people i knew and i i don't think they had ever gone before so i just wanted to know more about it but also i saw a lot of stuff about indigenous uh, uh maybe some pre i don't know if you saw them but some presentations about uh the way archaeology has been handled so far and some indigenous people asserting their opinion. And I didn't, I mean, from what I was seeing, it looked like someone actually stood up and said the truth that archaeologists never want to hear, that the reason why there's no diversity is because there's no diversity. And by having no diversity, it makes it an obstacle for anyone who wants to enter it because they're going to be alone and they'll have to put up with a whole bunch of stuff. And also because you're doing archaeology, specifically prehistoric stuff, you have to deal with indigenous things, but you're not indigenous. Hmm. I mean, for the most part. So it's this uncomfortable statement that everybody spends their time trying to tiptoe around without actually addressing head on. Because to address it head on, unless you were like a leading international scholar, would mean that nobody likes you after hearing the truth. I mean, no one wants to really hear that kind of tough stuff, which is why it never happens. But through Twitter, it looked like that actually happened. And it's really rare in my experience to see someone talk about these kind of widespread things that are happening in archaeology head on and with a kind of, you know, gloves off approach. So did you hear any of that? Did you see that? Well, let's let's get into that because uh, that's going to be a longer conversation. Uh, we'll do that when we get back from the break and uh, we'll be back from the break in 30 seconds. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we are back for episode 124. And we are talking about, uh, right now, we're talking about Chalk Mool, the conference that happened up in Canada. Uh, I don't know when that even was, like a month ago. Um, sometime in the fall of 2017. And it was the 50th anniversary of that conference. And Stephen went to that conference. So I think, Bill, you were just asking Stephen at the end of the last segment, um, you know, what, what were some of your, what were some of your takeaways from the conference? Yeah. Um, well, what Bill was, I think mostly talking about, uh, well, first the chocolate conference, um, happens or tends to happen over, uh, remembrance day weekend. Um, so mm-hmm. I can figure out what day that is for all the Americans. 
yeah, and, and specifically the uh, session uh, Bill was talking about was um, uh, the pedag- pedagogy in the uh, mm-hmm. for the next fifty years, like future of archaeological pe- pedagogy. Yeah, and and, and uh, specifically, I, I think what he was um, the the paper he was re- referring to was uh, by uh, Keisha Supernant, who's a uh, Métis, um, and, and she's a professor. Um, or an associate professor up at the, the University of Alberta, and she's kind of a rock star. So, um, like, it, it was one of those things about you know, Bill was asking, um, you know, like, how how could you do something like this without making everybody uncomfortable? And, and the answer is like, she was trying to make people uncomfortable, and mm-hmm. um, that right now, um, in the wake of the Truth and Reconciliation um, report. Uh, that uh, that that was going on in Canada. That uh, there are specific. Uh, I don't, I'm trying to think of a, a good way of putting it, but basically, um, uh, First Nations concerns are being very publicly aired, um, and and mm-hmm. and I think it's it's a good thing for sure, um, and uh, but yeah. So Keisha Supernaut had had a great uh, paper. Um, largely talking about, you know, the institutionalized, you know, uh, white supremacy in, involved with archaeology. And, um, you know, from a heritage perspective, um, we are essentially cutting out um, a lot of the people um, that, that, you know, we're studying. Uh, that, you know, you, you're, you're dealing with thousands of years of, you know, First Nations history um, and, and the there is a stunning lack of uh, First Nations involvement, but it but it also includes you know other minority groups, right? So, um, and and you know we've had like the uh, Bill, what, what's it called? The uh, Council of Black Archaeologists, is that right? Uh, Society of Black um, Archaeologists. Society, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So you know, tr- trying to get you know like more uh, more perspectives into. Uh, you know, archaeology. Um, and, and it was, you know, uh, I, I think it was a very uncomfortable uh, paper for a lot of very good reasons. Um, and, and it's the good kind of discomfort where, you know, we have to challenge our own perspectives and uh, think about, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I, so I, I would like to get her on the show at some point if we could. Um, I, I've tweeted at her. Um, and and you know if if we could that would be you know absolutely awesome um mm-hmm. to to talk more about that uh that that session though i mean you know her hers was like you know I, I, she, she might have even been the last one of of the session but it was kind of like you know a, a really good mic drop sort of talk but you know there there are other really interesting uh, papers um from a wide variety of perspectives so um and, and I don't have the program in front of me, but so I'm going to forget people's names. Uh, someone from uh, Simon Fraser University was talking about they have a heritage management, uh, heritage resource management master's uh, program that is uh, aimed at uh, professionals. And I can't remember if we discussed that before on the show, um, but it is really interesting because. Uh, you know, they, they were uh, bringing up, you know, basically how they structure it as, you know, archaeology is a business. So they had to, you know, present this program at, from a business-like perspective. And, and you know, and, and it, was, it was funny because they, they were kind of presenting from a, a point of like, you know, and, and since, you know, business is a strongly neoliberal sort of entity that we have to present ourselves as uh, a neoliberal entity. And, and it was kind of like, haha, we're, you know, pretending to be neoliberals, but we're not really being neoliberals, which I don't think works at all. And, and, and then like there was another uh, person who I think was at McMaster's and uh, and, and she, she was talking about, you know, basically the other side of things about, you know, how hard it is to get a job and, and how hard it is to incorporate that, you know, you know, to, how do you do pedagogy if, if you can't get a job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and so there was a lot of really different perspectives that kind of 
they didn't really feed off each other because they were, you know, very different topics and very different perspectives, but they kind of fed off of each other and, and bounced around. And it was like a really um, good thing. And, and uh, Bill's in the chat. You can talk, Bill. I mean, it's- yeah, it's turned off because my family was having an altercation in the background. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, yeah. So, and as Bill pointed out in the background, uh, Adrian Pratelis was, uh, um, also in that same session talking about, you know, um, teaching theory, uh, and, and the importance of theory. And, and, um, so there, there were a lot of really good papers there and of the sessions that I saw. And, and I mean, mostly I went to that and then I ended up doing all the, you know, research in Western Canada and, uh, um, and, and then the local CRM stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. but, so, Stephen. Yeah. How many days was it? Uh, it's, it's four. Okay. It sounds like it was pretty stacked. Was it as stacked every day? Yeah. Like you were just describing that sessions that you were attending where it was just back after, you know, back to back awesome talk about uh, CRM and then uh, indigenous perspectives and in the future of uh, um, archaeology? Or was it more like, the bigger conferences where it's four days, but everything is so scattered all over the place. There's no way for you to be able to see all of the stuff. So you end up just, you know. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of concurrent sessions. I think there were at, at the most uh, three concurrent sessions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can't possibly see everything, but that's not no too unusual. Can we back up real quick? Because you brought up a lot of stuff, Stephen, and I want to talk about some of it um, before we get we get too deep into this. Um, first off, in the show notes, I'll have uh, Sierra Mark podcast episode one fourteen. That's where we talked to Simon Fraser University. That was a really good episode. But one of the things you were talking about with the First Nations and um, their perspectives in archaeology, something I'm always really kind of wondering. And if I don't know if you heard any of this while you were there, um, or if you're you know, discussing us up there because, you know, I'm sure First Nations groups um, and for anybody that doesn't know, that's what, you know, we call uh, Native Americans down here, First Nations groups up in Canada, um, just in case somebody wasn't aware of that. But I'm, I'm always wondering about the perspectives, like you mentioned, because are they are they generally referring to perspectives, the First Nation perspective in archaeology from a standpoint of interpretation, like we're out there recording these things. And using our sort of Western biases to record them and not taking enough um, historical account into play when we when we interpret these things uh, and the First Nations people would look at it and say, um, you're actually wrong. It was this because, you know, we know that from a from a cultural standpoint. Or are they more referring to uh, perspectives from a public archaeology standpoint, how the things how things are portrayed um, maybe in the media, in museums, whatever are outlets are you know what is what was your sense of the focus on that or is it both it's both um and more uh and and you know i I really really don't want to be just you know um echoing uh uh, the speaker because you know really um I, i don't think i could do it quite justice but um i think uh you know it it's it goes beyond that in that um, it is overseen as um, that that you know the archaeologists, the, the predominantly white, you know, male archaeologists mm-hmm. are, uh, you know, basically we hold ourselves up as uh, not just the experts in, in you know archaeology and in, in the process and in. Um, you know, histories that, you know, and, and material cultures and, you know, like we're, we're not just subject matter experts, but we're actually like the caretakers of it, that we mm-hmm. are, um, you know, the authorities, not just an interpretation, um, but an access, um, and, and that we get to, you know, say what gets done with these things. And, and a, as a control of information processes, um, you know, basically, like we are controlling these intellectual properties, in 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 a, in mm-hmm. a sense, and that you know they should get more of a say in how these things are um, used. And and I hope I'm not going way um, 
putting, putting too many words in, in our mouth on this. No, you, you hit it on the head. But the other thing that ends up happening is just the entire structure of the conference itself, right? So, I mean, this is, uh, I don't know what to say. It, it's hard. I don't know. I'm trying to find the words to describe it. In school, you are in courses, you know, that are designed for various purposes. So uh, uh, in college, if you end up in a classroom where there's all only white students, it's not really that off-putting because you're in school, right? And the minute that you leave that place, you're going to walk out and uh, join your everyday life and you'll go back to diversity or wherever else you, you know, whatever community that you're used to. This is one of the shocking things about college because uh, non-white students go to a place and sometimes it can be overwhelmingly white. And so you have no community to go back to, right? But the other thing about school is that it's kind of like an extractive type thing in a lot of ways where you're going there, you put in the hours, you get the degree out at the other end. And then from there, you can move on, right? And it's hoped that when you move on, you're going to end up in a place where not only you will see other people like yourself that have similar experience and similar understanding of the world, but that uh, those people will all be working together on projects, you know, whether it's electronics or engineering or archaeology, right? Except that's not the what happens in archaeology, right? So your university has a lot of non-white people, or I mean white people there. And so you could be following your major through with no one of your ethnic group at all, you know, ever interacting with anyone of your race or color. No one will ever have your experience or anything like that. And you go to the conferences and you have to network and you have to network you know, with people who have no idea what you've lived through or your experiences or any of that stuff. And then if you are lucky enough to finish and network yourself into a job, you end up working in a workplace where there's no one of color at your workplace, right? But you'll go to the conference and hear them talk about how they need to increase diversity and how they can't figure out how they're going to do that. Like, how come more Native Americans or black people don't want to be part of that? Well, because the pathway to get from you know, your, uh, you know, your dream of being an archaeologist goes right through being alone, you're gonna have to be alone the whole time. So after years and years of being alone in college, you're gonna end up in a career where you're all alone, too. And so that's the, that's where it's hard to uh, increase diversity, because being that one who's never sure of themselves, never knows what they're going to say, never knows what's okay to say, what's not okay to say, uh, having to listen to other people's ideas, but, you know, not really have theirs, them listen to you because you're not the main force. I mean, all that stuff is uncomfortable and not everyone can actually put up with that. And and that's kind of what I hear at the conferences where I, I wasn't at this, so I don't know what was said, but for someone to, uh, grab the microphone and give a 15 minute talk that it takes it head on makes everybody feel uncomfortable. And they realize that they're all complicit in this entire process and don't know how to fix it. And that's a really uncomfortable place to be. And in my experience, when someone does that, they're kind of like, uh, everyone looks away, right? Because it's the bad dream that you don't want to think about. So it just keeps replicating itself and it continues. And also, uh, to add to Bill's talk there, it gets worse in that um, a lot of people's experiences aren't validated by the profession. And that, uh, so the universities that primarily have archaeology tend to be sort of your Ivy League tier one universities, tier two or whatever. And everyone sort of, and those predominantly happen to be white institutes. Um, and, you know, disproportionately, most, most students, most minority students end up going to community colleges or state schools. And if you didn't get, you know, your degree from Michigan or Harvard or, you know, pick one of those big schools, it's not considered archaeology. Um, there was a, a paper that came out Oh, sometime during the summer in one of the SAA journals about, you know, your odds of getting a, a job, a, you know, a teaching job. And they, they put it at about 20%, but they only counted PhD programs. And so archaeologists who are teaching at, um, you know, two-year programs, uh, teaching at um, community colleges, or even just uh, the master's level programs aren't considered 
they weren't included in this idea of being archaeologists and being academics. Um, but those are the universities that primarily cater to um, minority-based students. So, you know, it, it is basically reinforcing this whole idea that, um, as Bill was saying, you know, there's no one else like you. And if there are other people like you, that's not considered real archaeology or real archaeology programs. All right. Well, I've got a I've got a comment on that, I think. Um, but we're going to take that after the break when we sum up this conversation on the other side in segment three. Um, if you'd like us to go to these conferences and bring back these discussions to you, then go buy something in the store. Arquadnet.com forward slash shop. Um, we're supposed to go to the SHAs this year. It's supposed to be there, but uh, just simply can't can't do it with the SAs coming up because if I got to choose one or the other, it's got to be the SAs. So um, I'd like to not choose and take the APN to all these conferences and report on these sessions and talk to the people and bring it back to everyone to start a conversation. So anyway, we'll be back in just a minute from uh, for the to wrap up this conversation and uh, see what we can do from it. Back in a second. Hey, podcast listeners, do you find yourself wondering what the latest tablet or smartphone could do for your business? Wonder what GPS to pair with your device? Just trying to figure out how to go digital in the field without breaking the bank and or making a bad investment? Or did you find a technology company to work with, but just aren't sure the questions you need to ask during the initial conversation? Well, you're not alone. There are literally thousands of tech combinations out there, and it can be really tough finding the right one for your business and your workflow. My name is Chris Webster, and I've been working in CRM since 2005, and I've been a tech enthusiast my entire life. I spend my time trying to figure out how to make archaeology more efficient, both technologically and financially. No one is going to give you a big pile of money to do whatever you want with, so you have to make the most of what you have. The right gear can mean the difference between zero margins on that next project and an employee benefits package. That's where DigTech Concierge comes in. Let us be your technology guru. Whether you have just a few questions or want us on retainer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we're here to help. With years of experience, tens of thousands of acres of survey done completely digitally, and many, many people trained, DigTech is your tech BFF just waiting to guide you through this process now and through the inevitable changes to come. Should you hold on to those tablets or upgrade? What about the new operating system? Will it crash your apps or can you go ahead and do it? We know the answers and can guide you to a profitable year. Go to www.digtech-llc.com slash tech dash concierge to book a consultation or book us for the year. The yearly retainer includes unlimited calls and support and company training on software and gear. That's digtech-llc.com slash tech-concierge. And concierge is C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E. To get going and go digital today. Call us before you make any decisions. We've been there before. We are back for the final segment of episode 124. And we're currently talking about uh, well, we're kind of talking about what Doug was talking about right here at the end here, just diversity and 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 Doug, you were talking about archaeology programs and uh, at universities and how they're you know typically archaeology programs are predominantly um, I guess white affluent universities. Um, I'm not sure, man. I'm just not so sure uh, about that statement because it seems like just about all universities have now. All universities in general, like you were saying, might just be white affluent universities. <laughs> and then, you know, you come down to the community college level and they don't typically have an anthropology program. Although, uh, the, uh, can, can I clarify a bit on that, Chris? Yes, please. Yeah. Please do. So, um, the PhD programs. So, there's about 90 some uh, PhD programs, and those tend to be at the richer, more, um, less minority um, sort of admissions to those universities. Uh, so that's the PhD. Right. And when I was sorry, I probably didn't make that clear. Is there's actually a ton of programs. So that's only I think there's about you can get about 400 some programs in the United States that do archaeology. And so only about 90 of them do PhD, and they have to mm -hmm. be there. But you know, three quarters of what people do for archaeology are going to be at universities that only have a master's level. Um, and that and that's those tend to be at like you know quote unquote the lower tier universities i i actually think rankings are i have a huge problem with rankings but that's a whole different podcast um but yeah most majority of people in archaeology probably are going to one of these other other universities and there's actually quite a few um you know community colleges that have programs where you can do archaeology or you know mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be a full program but you can do 
courses and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the, the part I'd like to get across is it's the big dog PhD programs. Uh, I believe Bill has a, a blog post on it. Um, and it's those programs that people think about as like archaeology and those are archaeologists because you have to have a PhD to be an archaeologist. Or if you want to, you know, go in and become an academic, you, you're only truly an archaeology academic if you teach at one of these PhD programs. Um, but mm-hmm. actually, at least half the people who get a PhD in archaeology are going to be teaching at one of these other, you know, a master's level or even undergraduate, just a BA level university that only has a program to that. Um, and those sort of programs and at those universities tend to cater to a much more diverse and by diverse, I'm also talking like non-traditional students. So people who are maybe going back for a degree in their thirties, forties or fifties, um, people that have already started a family before they went to university. So it's, it's not your typical thing and it's a very big, diverse range and we actually reach a lot of them. It's just that when you get into the profession, they're not actually quote unquote considered archeologists. Yeah. I did write a blog post about this and it addresses the, uh, I, I mean, I obviously as Steven will say, I write titles that are clickbait, right? But it gets people to read, you know what I'm saying? It gets them <laughs> Never to get read. Them so I, uh, it, it's called mind control in archaeology, and and there was an article I came across that's from the um, uh, Journal of Higher Learning. Uh, uh, it's like their weekly update one. I can't remember. It's, it's cited in there. Anyway, the a uh, couple of people, couple of uh, the Chronicle of Higher Ed's Chronicle Review, and there's an article that says how the academic elite reproduces itself. And from that article, they said that the top 25% of PhD institutions produced 89% of the academic articles on JSTOR. So the top 3% of those, and Berkeley's in there, uh, produced over half of all the articles on there. And then authors from Yale or Harvard accounted for over 20% of all the articles on JSTOR. So that's just one database. Obviously, you know, you, we can all say that those those numbers may be, you know, they're they're influenced greatly by who publishes in journals that are on JSTOR because not all journals are on JSTOR and JSTOR is just one of the many different databases you can use. And so obviously from there, this is just giving you a rough idea, right? But where the mind control thing kind of comes into place is these are the guys who write the articles that we cite in our, uh, in our um, CRM reports. So I, I was, you know, wondering, well, does this matter for archaeology? And so I went to a rankings website and saw the top 10 programs. And, um, you know, you can see the top 10 on my, on my, uh, on the blog post. But then I went and looked at, um, the, uh, Michael Smith at publishing archaeology, his blog a few years ago, almost 10 years ago, actually, he published, or he made a list of, the 10 most cited archaeology articles uh, as of 2008. And then I just looked through the authors. uh, Well, I think he he actually published 20 articles or something like that or 14, but I only used 10 in mine. But I looked to see where those articles, where those authors went to school, if they had some connection to the top 10 archaeology schools in the world. And they did. You know, 70% of these people either uh, worked for or graduated from one of the top 10 institutions or they worked for or graduated from one that's in the top 25, right? So there was some universities that maybe weren't in the top 10, but ones like Arizona that, you know, Michael Schiffer, he's there for a long time. And so we, we end up citing those articles. So the idea was that if you just like um, Doug was just telling us, if you didn't go to one of those schools, it's hard for you to get a job at one of those schools. And if you get a job at one of those schools, you have a lot of pressure to publish. And because you went to one of those schools, they're going to publish what you write, which means that you then end up being cited in CRM reports and also by other archaeologists. So the the cycle kind of continues. But what's not happening is the um, introduction of information that's coming from CRM because professors are uh, reading the same peer-reviewed journal articles and the same books that are coming out of academic presses, but they're not really reading CRM reports. However, the CRMers are reading their stuff. So there's flow coming from these universities into CRM, but it's not going the same way back to uh, 
uh, university scholars who actually, in all fairness, could really use this information because they're writing about their one or two sites that they have access to or the seven or eight sites that have been reported by someone from Arizona or Berkeley or something like that. But they actually don't know the full breadth of all the sites of that type that are coming out of CRM. It's a, I mean, it's a pretty interesting uh, situation, but uh, Doug hit it on the head. If you're not part of one of those institutions, you're not necessarily considered a real archaeologist, or at least an archaeologist that's important enough to be listened to. And, and I do think that's a real problem. The, the funny thing is, to me, that, you know, we have these conversations about, uh, and you hear this stuff actually kind of all the time. I mean, that like, the, the thing that kicked this all off was an entire conference uh, where, you know, one of Stephen's big takeaways was talking about this diversity problem. And yet we're saying you're not going to get cited. You're not going to be seen as a real archaeologist. Who is the ones that are actually doing that, Bill? Like in your like, who's who's looking at this guy and saying, oh, well, that was kind of a good paper, but he didn't go to this school. Uh, he went to, you know, the Truckee Meadows Community College in Reno. What the hell am I going to cite him for? He must not know anything. Who's doing that? Who's actually doing that? That's the thing. I don't really think that legitimate scholars who are interested in furthering information are doing that, right? So if you were to come to someone and say, hey, in the neighborhood right over there, this company did a five-year data recovery, or I mean a, a five-month data recovery, and they found all this whole African-American city there, and you're writing about African-Americans that are in this local area, maybe you should look at this information. I can almost guarantee you if that person found out about this and they didn't know about it, you know, something that happened in the 80s or the 90s or something like that, and they get this massive CRM report, they're going to be like, holy cow, there's all this information. And then if they actually are interested in that kind of archaeology, if they're interested in reporting an actual data or information that came from someone, they'll probably ask for the data set, right? But they're never going to know that that happened unless a CRMer that's actually been there because they're not going to start their research for their next book at the shippo you know most people are not going to start there they're going to start on jstor in some major university library somewhere they might go to like an archives or a special collections at some library or you know an archive somewhere a state facility but they're probably not going to go to the shippo and they're probably not going to try to find all the crmers nearby and say hey do you know anything about um you know african-american villages at this time and place and do kind of a you know uh, interviewing session with a bunch of people to to find and see if anything's there. So I think that real scholars will accept information that comes from CRM uh, and try to incorporate it into their work because they want to be cited, right? They want to be the authorities of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily happen. So if they see something coming from Truckee uh, Community College and it's actually really insightful with a lot of information and stuff, they might want to look more. They're probably not going to thumb their nose at, oh, well, she didn't go to Harvard, so there's no way I can cite her. <laughs> right. Doug, do you still disagree? Uh, yeah, because I'll, I'll say I disagree from my personal experience, so I don't know how widespread this is. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, prejudices in archaeology surrounding where you went to um, school. And that could even just be in CRM. So I, I know certain states... If you didn't go to the local university because that university did, you know, so I, I can see the legitimate um, argument there that that university does local archaeology, and so it's the best. But I mean, you go to certain states, and if you don't have the right degree from the right university, no one will hire you above a field tech level, or and then like at an academic level, um, yeah, I've had lots of conversations where certain universities won't take on grad students unless they're from other certain universities. Um, and I, I've had conversations with uh, academic and university people will be like, oh, they're from so-and-so. I don't need to listen to them. Uh, they're basically working at a lo lower tier university. Um, I've, I've seen quite a bit of it. And, I, you know, maybe there's – I think there are people who will accept it, but even then on like journals, if you didn't have your article published in the right journal, people won't cite it. They assume that if you, you, you know, you have your article in a regional journal, which actually tends to be a lot more CRM focused, they won't cite regional journals because, you know, or read them even because that's below them. 
Um, I, I mean, this is not everyone. I think Bill has a really good point that there are certain people who they'll look at the information, they'll look at the data, and if it's good, they'll use it. Um, but there are still a ton of people with prejudices against stuff just because it comes from a certain location. Um, and I will stop with that and let uh, Stephen have his comment. Uh, yeah, um, I think uh, to, to kind of put this all in perspective, you know, going going back to our diversity thing even, um, that part of this, at least my view of education is that, you know, what you want to find in a good program, particularly at the grad school level, um, is you know, like a program that can provide you with like the community and the opportunities. Um, because in, in, if you go and your cohort is a, of a certain level of connectedness, say, you know, from a networking perspective, is that that gives you greater opportunities to, you know, future employment or future projects, Let's say projects instead of employment. Um, and, and, you know, in, in that respect, so, you know, what Bill's kind of talking about is that, you know, in order to, you know, like the, the schools with the most amount of, of that, you know, opportunity are, are the ones that, you know, he's talking about that you go there and, and it kind of gives you um, the opportunities to expand upon um, for future employment. Um, I, I kind of have an issue with like, you know, he, he's talking about like the most cited articles and, and a lot of those are, pretty old. So I'm not sure that, um, you know, while those, those old articles that had more time to get, you know, propagated further, but you know, that does not necessarily reflect like the, uh, the current status of, of those particular departments. Um, but, but this kind of ties in with the whole, you know, diversity thing that we were talking about, you know, at, at the beginning, because if you're, not part of those groups, or even if you go to those programs, but you, you know, view yourself as an outsider or you are um, regarded as an outsider because, you know, you're not, you're not a very, um, well, you're not a white guy or something like that. Um, then, you know, that, that becomes a problem, right? Is that you are essentially being cut off from those uh, networking opportunities that you need to succeed in, in, in the future. And, um, you know, so it's kind of a double whammy of, you know, like, you know, getting to those programs, getting those opportunities, um, and, and, you know, and, and then on top of it, you know, having your, uh, uh, minority, uh, opinion, um, you know, out there it, like that, there's a lot of challenges there. So Steven, just as we're wrapping up here. Um, I think, I think, uh, just kind of bouncing off of what you have said a little bit. Um, I honestly think that this is kind of a problem that is slowly, but surely fixing itself. And quite frankly, um, I think it stems from, uh, originally from, uh, school pride and sports and things like that. You know, people, whether they are consciously doing it or not, even though as as archaeologists and people in the anthropology program, we tend to sometimes thumb our noses at the uh, sports fans out there and, the, oh, I don't care about the team doing this. But however, you still have pride in your school occasionally. And you you if you've got two people standing in front of you and you're going to hire one of them and one of them went to your school and one of them didn't and they're both equal in all over circumstances unconscious decision making might come into play and you might accept the person that went to the school you went to for no good reason. But we're starting to devalue college a lot more uh, in in this day and age, just as a society. We're still out there getting degrees and college attendance is still up. But um, I feel like we're starting to, uh, at least maybe in local circles or, or smaller circles, we're starting to um, not put as much emphasis on on that just as a society it seems to me um there's a there's a big focus on you know a bunch of other things it's not necessarily uh you know you have to go to college after high school anymore um and that might just be a, a western no, I, united states perspective yeah, I, because I of things totally like with yeah i disagree with well that's because you're in canada because there's, and you no, and you were in I'm, wisconsin oh, i'm gonna disagree 100 percent oh, god you guys aren't 
But you guys aren't listening to the, hold on, I'm not just talking about archaeology here. I'm talking about in general. I mean, the focus in the Silicon Valley area, Bill, just south of you, and 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 Reno here where I'm at, Reno's trying to set themselves up as the new Silicon Valley because they brought in Tesla and they're bringing in all these other uh, all these other things over here that are uh, technology focused. None of these companies are requiring degrees to work for them. And they're actually focusing on that fact. They're saying, we want people with well, experience doing this and that can work from well, home and can do these say, other things. Yeah, and and, and also, that's kind of like, where the world is going. Of course, archaeology is going to be 20 years behind that. That's the exception, Chris. That is the I mean, exception. That they're going to ask for a bachelor's that's from that person, fun. even though that job doesn't require that. I mean, what about the you know uh, manager of a regional uh, distribution company or something like that. They're going to want someone who has an MBA, right? The, the degree still has the prestige. Maybe maybe in tech it's a little bit different. Maybe in construction. No, actually it's not different in construction maybe. either. Yeah. It's pretty much just tech. Chris, all the data, I mean, basically the, the people who have the highest unemployment rates are people without without degrees. More, more people are getting degrees now than at any point in history, you're, you're pushing almost 50% of kids coming out of high school getting degrees or going to some sort of university at least and attempting it. Yeah, well, like Silicon okay. Valley is like the exception where they, they're looking for other things. But for almost, I'd say, very few other uh, professions does that apply to. Almost everywhere else, the degree matters more now than it did 10, 20, 30 years ago. That's why you have degree inflation, more people with PhDs and masters than at any point. It's because a, a high school or a, a bachelor's means nothing now. All right. So this discussion actually went probably another 10 or 15 minutes. Um, I just had to cut it off because we stick the, keep these to an hour just to keep our contract with our listeners. And uh, But if you want to listen to the bonus content, which is basically the extended uh, version of this uh, this discussion, uh, and some of the things we kind of wrapped up to in in conclusion, I won't say you're missing a whole lot if you don't go to the bonus content. Well, you are. I mean, you're missing the rest of our conversation, but we don't wrap it up with any solutions because there aren't any solutions right now. So um, go check that out. It's uh, at arcpodnet.com forward slash members. You'll see bonus content on the left side. Um, that's The bonus content is open to most of our membership levels. So um, even if you wanted to come in as a, uh, I mean, I don't want you to do this, but if you wanted to come in on the free trial for five days, and then listen to the bonus content and then cancel your subscription. We're really welcome to, but please stick around because you'll get bonus content from other shows and you get shows released early too. So, uh, as soon as these are edited and tested and, and verified, they get put into the, um, into the, basically the high quality download section for premium content members. So, um, they get to hear them as soon as they're ready, not on the release schedule. So keep that in mind. All right. Thanks a lot. I think that's enough for this episode. Let's uh, uh, let's go ahead and call this, and we'll see if we can't get some more people on next time to maybe bring back the whole "how do you date in the field without being a jackass" conversation. But we need uh, we need some uh, some solid women volunteers, I think, to to bring in that conversation, uh, to bring it full circle, and to have all sides of the equation here. Um, so if you want to come in as a guest or you want to come in as a co-host, we can try you out as a guest if you want, a guest co-host, and then come on in. Uh, and this is open to men and women. I mean, we'll, we'll build up the pool. Um, and you're not committed to every two weeks, although more is better than less. You would be committed to, um, you know, our, our different uh, management stuff like Slack. We use Slack as our, our sort of conversation starter so we can discuss the episodes and get them rolling. But um, aside from that... Uh, you just need to be available and have opinions and be willing to express them uh, on the internet where everyone can hear you. So um, anyway, uh, that's it. Uh, thanks for this. And we'll be back next time. Hopefully uh, a little more cheery topic. Who knows? <laughs> Probably not. But we'll be back next time with the CRM Archaeology Podcast. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Adios. Goodbye. <laughs> I always have to mute mine to stop laughing so that you don't hear me laughing. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.